0: It's great so we don't have to wake up with shoulder pain. On top of that, it's been really fun for me to see him have so much success because it's been selling like crazy. Anyways, if you're a side sleeper, I highly recommend going to pillowcube.com and getting one
1: for yourself. I love doing it and I need Never give it up but it became apparent to me after a while that there was only so many patients i could treat you know and i i wanted to do something bigger the second was a matter of uh, of being like my research worked out really really well so i think it was the only way to take what i was generating and translate it to to patients i think i was driven throughout my career by this by wanting to do more and and i'm sort of a slightly restless personality i never get uh, i never get happy
0: a really interesting guy. I think you guys are going to like Fotis Sampodiotis. How close did I do on your name?
1: Uh, that was
0: perfect. Fotis
1: Sampodiotis. You got it. Very <laughs> <laughs> okay.
0: you do, actually. So Fotis is a clinical, he's a doctor, he's a researcher, he's an inventor, he's an entrepreneur. I'm, I'm actually interested how you describe yourself when you cover so many disciplines, when you meet people, Fotis.
1: Yeah, I don't think there's a, there's a title. As, um, as I was telling you previously, I think I'm a bit of a jack of all trades. We, I do work as a doctor in the hospital in Addenbrooke's in the liver unit, but I also do science in the Cambridge Stem Cell Institute. We then try to take the research prototypes that we develop in the lab all the way to patients. And for that, I had to, to found a biotech, bilitech, so I've got my entrepreneur hat on. So I think a little bit of everything and a little bit of nothing, I would say. But. But I don't know whether the title actually matters that much. And officially, we are called clinician scientists when you do a little bit of both. Okay. And
0: and tell me this. You grew up at the port of Athens. Is that, what you, is that right? That's exactly right. Yeah. So what's the difference between the port of Athens and Athens for us, you know, ignorant Canadians who grew up in in, in the farm country?
1: Uh, like uh, 20 minutes drive by car. Yeah. <laughs> so, okay. so Athens is the big city where the Parthenon is at the center of it. And the port of Athens is is called Piraeus. It used to be in ancient times a, a separate city because, you know, it's a bit of a distance. It's a few kilometers, I would say, from from the city center. But they've all merged into this one big town. So actually, if you want to go to the islands, one way to do it is to land in Athens and then take the taxi, go to the port in half an hour and then board the ship and get to the island of your choice.
0: So I I will say that I think I would personally rather take your weather in Athens than, than where you are in the UK. But the UK has got great things about it.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I can't blame it. I used to love the fact that there was no sun for the first two, three years when I came here. And everybody was telling me, Are you crazy? But of course, in in Greece, what you do is if you find the shade, you walk on the side of the shade because there's always always so much sun. (laughs) In the UK, I learned to do the opposite. So now when I go back home, everybody's like, what is the matter with you? Why are you walking in the sun? Just get back in the shade. So I suppose, you know, the grass is always greener on the other side. When you are in the UK, you miss Greece. When you are in Greece, you miss the UK.
0: yeah. Well, I, I really want to dive into actually let's start with this. Can you, you know, I we were talking beforehand. I found out about you from Peter Diamantis and, and specifically what you guys are doing with with have done with livers. Can you tell people about that and then and then
1: some of the other things you've worked on as well? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So what we do. If I were to put it in a nutshell, but I can go into as much detail as as you want, so please feel free to stop me. So what we do in a nutshell is we take small samples from patients, say, for example, a small biopsy. We grow out the patient cells in the lab and then we use them to repair the patient's damaged organ. And how do we do that? At the moment, we do that in two main ways, if I were to, to summarize. them, The first one is we try to give the cells back to the patient in form of an injection and repair damaged cells in the organ. In other cases, what we try and do is we try to manufacture in the lab either an artificial organ, which we call it a bioengineered organ, or to be most more accurate, a part of of an organ, the part that has been damaged. Think of it as a replacement part. You you take your car to the garage, they find out what's broken, they make that part, they replace it, and you're good to go. And of course, ideally, one would want to do it for every organ under the sun, and that's the ultimate goal. But of course, you have to start from somewhere. So I'm a liver doctor. It stands to reason that I would start from liver disorders, and I focus on a particular type of liver disorders, which have to do with the bile ducts, a network of tubes in the liver that drain bile, which is a digestive fluid. And and I focused on these diseases because they are quite important. They account for 70% of transplants in children, 30% in adults, and there is, for most of them, for most of them, there's no treatment other than liver transplantation. And I think we're making progress into finding a solution for these diseases. So... That's what we do in a nutshell. But I'm very happy to go into more detail as you as you see fit.
0: So, for those of us not as up to date on what's ha- what what can and can't be done medically, can you talk about why this was such a breakthrough and, and why this has garnered so much attention and, and how this was not this was not a possibility in the past? Yeah,
1: you're talking, I think, about our most recent work, isn't it, with with the human liver? So, I think w- what we what we do, taking cells to repair organs, is called regenerative medicine, and this although we, we don't routinely use it in patients, it hasn't hit the patients yet, is an idea that has been growing in the scientific community for quite some time. But what was the big wall? in preventing us from getting from the lab where we generate our prototypes to the patients. The big wall, I think, is very straightforward for everybody to understand is the fact that you don't know that it's going to work in human. So the first time you do it, taking the first leap of faith, it is quite difficult. So what have we done so far? Everybody has been trying to take themselves, their their cells, excuse me, and show that they grow in the lab. Then we thought, all right, but this is going to go in a living being. Why don't we test it in animals? And we were going in bigger and bigger and bigger animals. And we have shown as well as others quite some time ago that our cells, for example, will work very well in mice or in pigs. But again, you know, if you go to your patient and say, Well, this treatment worked brilliantly in pigs and now it's going to go in you, they're like, mm, I'm not entirely sure. So so what I thought is, is there a way to show that what we do works in human? And of course, that's impossible short of, of doing a, a trial or short of picking some some volunteers and saying, would you actually be happy to have this this treatment? However, we did find a workaround because Attenborough, where I work as a hospital, is a transplant center. So to give you a bit of background, what happens is every time a liver becomes available, unfortunately, uh, an organ donor died, but, but they want to help by donating their organ. So the organ is retrieved, it goes in a bucket with ice, it comes in the hospital. Then what we do is many times we will put it on a machine that circulates warm blood, which allows the organ to recover from ice. And then we'll see how the organ does. And sometimes it does super well and we put it in a patient and everything is A-OK. But some other times you see that it doesn't recover or the organ is not good or, or maybe the donor had the liver problem that they didn't know about and we cannot use it. And it goes in the bin. So as I was stuck about the next step of how to get ourselves to patients, I came across a couple of cases where we weren't using the organs. And I thought, this is crazy. These organs, which are damaged and could be repaired by cells, are actually going in the bin. So I started asking my colleagues around, guys, do you think it would be possible to do that? And and you know how things are. People take time to digest these ideas. But if you pester them long enough, after a while, even if only to get rid of you, they will say, well, okay, you can, you can do it once. So I think what is different to before is that, we have cells, we use them to repair organs, but for the first time we were able to take the next step and inject them in a human organ and show that actually what we thought would work in human does work in human. And when we now ask the regulators, can we please recruit some volunteers for the next step? Everybody is far more more happy, but also ourselves, hand on heart. we can. I can go now to a patient and say, you know what? I don't know if it's going to work in you, but the closest thing we have is a human liver and there it worked, and it makes a difference so and and specifically,
0: what liver ailments would it be most helpful for?
1: Yeah, so what we've what we've tested for the time being, and of course, we want to generalize that. But for the time being, is these diseases um, of the bald So the most common ones in adults are called primary biliary cirrhosis or primary sclerosis and cholangitis. In children, uh, it is the most common cause for liver transplantations. biliary atresia, a child which is being born without, without a bald And in that case, we would need to make a bioengineered an artificial bowel and give it to them. And the way these, these diseases work, to give a little bit of background, is that, as I mentioned, the liver produces bile bile is a very toxic fluid because it it is designed to aid with digestion and to break things down. So what the liver does is it needs to transfer this this fluid, which is so toxic, from from inside the liver all the way to the gut. To do that, it has a network of tubes. uh, Imagine it like the branches of a tree that collect the bile from all tiny bits of the liver down into the big trunk, which is called the, 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 the common bile duct. And then it goes into, into the gut. And what's so special about these tubes, it is the fact that they are the their lumen is lying. It is paved with with a certain type of cells. And these cells have one job and one job alone to resist this toxic fluid, to be able to withstand its attack so that they are not digested themselves. Now, if the cells die, then there's no barrier between the toxic fluid, which is the bile, and the surrounding tissue, which is the liver. Bile seeps into the liver and starts eating it up, digesting it. And it's a disaster because then you get scarring, liver failure, and ultimately death. Where we come in is we show that we can now find these tubes which have lost their lining, inject our cells, and you can think of it as a cobblestone where some of the cobbles are missing. We repave it with our cells. And it seems to be working, much to our surprise still, I have to admit. uh, Every time we do it, we're super happy. And so when you
0: inject the cells, is it that the body just knows how to place, you know, for the analogy here, knows how to place the cobblestones in the missing places, or are you like literally injecting them in the
1: right place? No, actually what we do is we inject quite a lot of them. So imagine now that you have a truckload and you empty so many cobbles on the road. Some of them will fall in the right hole. And of course, these (laughs) holes are are, are very sticky, right? So once they're in, they're in. It's not a problem. And, And that's... That, I think, is, you know, you need luck with everything. That is part of the thing that makes it so simple and so effective. The fact that we don't, the body does so much of it for us. If you think what we do, actually, in all honesty, it's so simple. We put the cells in. We culture them to make sure that they are primed, that they are in the right state. But ultimately, 99% of the job is done by the body. The cells, once once they return to the normal habitat to their natural environment they don't want to leave it they just want to stay there and they hang on for dear life and and say one last thing bear in mind that all these tubes, all these ducts have their own repair mechanism so once you patch up a hole even if it's half patched the body starts signaling these cells and says guys welcome now we have to repair damage and then they it instructs the cells to do what they should be doing so that's how it works i suppose
0: I have so many more questions, but I'll come back to them. Tell us about the startup. Tell us about the, putting the, you know, I don't know how many years, actually, why don't you tell us how many years of medical school and research you did? And then, and then let's talk. About oh, I later. mean, it's, uh,
1: <laughs> I, don't, I don't know, it's a lifetime, isn't it? It's probably, wow. it's been more than uh, 15 now because it's six years of medical school and then, of course, the, the small time that you that I had as a gap because I had to do my national service in Greece before I came to the UK. Then you've got to do uh, four years of training as a junior doctor, five years as a mid-grade doctor, which are extended to eight years if you do the PhD. You know, you add them up. <laughs> it's a lot. It's a lot. Maybe I should get a birthday cake. That's what they should be giving us at the end of the specialty training too. Uh, to have an idea of how much time we've spent. But it's also very rewarding because, you know, in every step of the way, you get to do a little bit more. You get more responsibility. And I suppose as with all these things, there's always a carrot at the end, which, which drives you, you know, that now I'm doing this thing, which is small. But tomorrow, if I do well, I will be doing that, which is a bit bigger and I'll be taking more responsibility. So... It's sort of the thing that, that keeps you going. And before you know it, 10 years have passed. And when you look back, you think, wow, that was a long time. But actually, when you were doing it, it seemed like, you know, it seemed like a breeze. So that's that's the, the medical school aspect. So, um, so t- yeah, tell us first tell us what the startup is. So the startup is called Billite. I think we founded the startup. It started as a way to take our research all the way to patients. And why is that? I mean, I think I suppose it is like thinking about it, think about the team that builds a Formula One car. You're in the lab, you build your research prototype. It's so cool. You love it. It works on the racetrack. There's no way you can drive it to work on the bumpy road, right? And then a lot of the things, if you take it to your research team, if you take to the Ferrari team and say, well, now we need to worry about fuel consumption. Actually, they do worry about fuel consumption, Formula One. But, but you know, most of the times they will say, well, this is not interesting for us. And they're absolutely right. So what you do is you have different challenges once you've achieved uh, proof of principle. Challenges with manufacturing, challenges with regulation. The only way to move from research all the way to patients and make a difference is to have the industrial sector take this forward because this is what they excel at. And when, when this became apparent to me, I wanted to take the next step. I didn't want to just generate fancy tools in the lab to play with them. I wanted to make a difference for patients. And this is when we started to form Belitech. We formed it actually in Christmas 2017. It was my Christmas present to myself. I thought I have to do it. So I was in two minds about it you know it's a new it's a new thing i'm not sure how i'm going to be able to do it so it was it was i think it was the 17th of december or the 21st and i thought well it's christmas i might as well (laughs) i might as well treat myself and we found it it hasn't uh it it hasn't failed me since i i never regret it and is there is there a website up for it already yeah there is a website but but at the moment we are uh, revamping it so hopefully because we want to get all the new exciting information. So hopefully we'll have a a, uh, very new uh, website up and running um, soon.
0: Well, and people will be hopefully listening to this episode for some time to come. So hopefully it'll be done by the time. What what's the URL? Or where can people see the website? We've got multiple URLs, but
1: if you go at .co.uk, that's the that's the easiest one to find it. So it's the, the UK address. And and will you spell that for us? Spell um, I do BaileyTech is spelled B-I-L-I-T-E-C-H dot C O dot UK like United Kingdom.
0: And so when you look at when you look at the future of, of this business, actually, my first question is this. There's so many folks who they spend so many years, they get to be fancy because they're a doctor, right? The idea of going and doing a startup where you know there's so much failure and headaches and stuff, there, there's a lot of folks that, that, that don't follow that path, especially after they spent so much energy becoming a doctor and recognized and working at Cambridge, things like this. What do you think is different about you that you decided to embrace entrepreneurship after how many, how many years of, of going down maybe more traditional or recognized path?
1: Yeah, I, I know what you mean. I think there there are several things. First, um, is the realization that if you do medicine, it's amazing. It's it really is so satisfying. But in the end of the day, if you do medicine, what you can do is you are, you know, you are one person. How many patients can you treat in your lifetime? And, and, I love doing it and I need to do it, actually. I would never give it up. But it became apparent to me after a while that there was only so many patients I could treat, you know, and I I wanted to do something bigger. The second was a matter of of being lucky. My research worked out really, really well. So I think it was the only way to take what I was generating and translate it to, to patients. I think I was driven throughout my career by this, by wanting to do more and and i'm sort of a slightly restless personality i never get uh, i never get happy with with what i have to my mind If you think you've achieved your ultimate goal, if you become a doctor and say, now I've arrived, then it's time to retire. You know, you always need to be looking for the next thing. So I I made some progress. I saw that I could treat some patients. I wanted to do more. So I did research. Once I achieved that, I wanted to do more. I wanted to translate this research to the patients. And I'm sure, I'm sure if all goes well with a company, something new will come up soon. (laughs) It's It's the way these things work. But I think we should never be to to some end without this being misinterpreted, we should never be satisfied. We should always be looking for more. Otherwise, after a while it gets you know, it's not tedious, but you know, you get used to it.
0: I'm I'm a fan. It's like eternal progression, right? Why why would you ever want to stop progressing?
1: Yeah, but it's also it's also very satisfying because it's 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 like this the same repetition is very nice, but also after a while you want something new. You could be playing the best video game in the world. If that's the only video game you've been playing for ten years, you need a change after a while. And change is good because you don't leave behind what you have learned, you don't leave behind what you have been doing. You built on top of it. So you make it you make it better right? It's like buying your first car and forever modding it to become better and better and faster and faster. You never leave it behind, but you keep changing it all the time. So a couple of questions that I have. These
0: donated organs that are unusable that you guys then did this testing on, do, do the does the testing help them enough that they could then be usable or, or the, is that not really possible?
1: Well, at the moment, it's not possible because of regulatory concerns. So what we did is, based on the initial tests, and this is what, what we published, we could return them, we could, we could resolve the damage, put it this way. Of course, the, the best way to, to know, the only way to know for sure that the damage was fully resolved uh, is once they pass all the tests, is to put them back in, in a setting. And And again, this is something that you would do in animals first. This is one of our ideas now. Now that we know that it works in human, we can do, for example, the same, exactly the same thing in a pig liver. So we take it out we fix it and then we put it in another pig and see that the parameters that we tested outside the body translate to good survival inside the body. And then we might be able to do that. We might be able to to move to the next step, which is we test all the parameters that now we know work outside and correspond to to good survival inside the body in an animal. And then we take our first liver, we repair it. It it you know hits on the the benchmarks. And now that we're happy, we have to take the step at some point and put it and put it in and. And, you know, there are cases, that's the good thing um, about transplantation, where it could be that or nothing. Because we do have patients who need an organ so urgently that they absolutely can't wait. And I think these are ideal cases where this would be, uh, this would be used. And, of course, this is where the regulations give us a lot of uh, flexibility. Because if someone's chances are a repaired organ versus almost certain death, then I think it makes a difference. And so we do no harm by putting this organ in, put it this way.
0: Well, you know, it's funny to me, all these interviews I get to do, how often the most powerful principles I hear repeatedly and how the principles are actually somewhat simple. Like the, the, the first French guy that used the word entrepreneur in the late 1700s he was using it to describe someone who takes a resource of lower value and, and makes it have a higher value. And to me, whether you're, you know, whether that's a financial entrepreneur or not, that is extremely entrepreneurial to take essentially organs that were headed to the trash and now use them to save lives. Like that's like the definition of an entrepreneur to me taking, you know, an unusable organ and and making it a usable organ and saving somebody's life. That's, that's a pretty incredible pursuit you get to be a part of.
1: And imagine how many op- doors it opens. Because once you know that this works, what's stopping you from using the same approach in an organ that never came out of the body? A patient who is end stage, who doesn't have any drug therapies. And then you say, okay, rather than taking your organ out to inject the cells, we can inject them directly with your organ um, in the body. And I think I think that's, that's one thing. And the other thing that really, really um, excites us with what is happening is the fact that, you know, for the first time, it is a paradigm shift. One of the problems I, I had when I was seeing patients in clinic was telling them, there's nothing we can do. And people are are very strong you know when they have a disease they come to terms with it they are remarkably strong and they will say okay doctor I, I take that point you know we have to look forward what can i do what are you doing to develop new treatments what's the timeline you tell them well you know we don't understand how the disease is working so let's see we would first have to understand how it works and then find out what to do to fix it Da da, da 20 years and then and then that's quite disappointing if you have the opportunity now imagine I, I got this idea as well when for the first time one of my um laptops broke down. So it was within warranty. I wrote back to the company, I said, guys, I really need it. How much? They said, You don't you know what? We're sending you a new laptop. Don't worry what's wrong with it. We'll take it, we'll fix it, but you're getting a new laptop. It's the same approach. It doesn't matter what's wrong with the patient's cells. As long as we provide new cells, we have all the time in the world we need to come up with new treatments because what the paradigm shift is is that we don't need to know what's causing the disease and you know if the new cells break down again well we can deliver more and and i think this is this is amazing well
0: i think about this my my father-in-law passed away from liver cancer you know and yeah and i think about you know how how you know how open the family would have been to other ideas do you know what i mean like when it's like, having options would have been incredible. You know, he's like 55. He, you know, he's he's not an old man, right? And so having more options would have been incredible,
1: you know? Absolutely. Unfortunately, the problem with cancer is that there, it's a combination of both. It's not only repairing the organ, but it's also getting rid of the cancer, which is something that ourselves couldn't do. But I am 100% with you on principle, just giving options, you know, trying every angle. And I think... That's what we should be doing. And, you know, if I'm honest, as with everything. And um, success is a matter of persistence, I think, rather than anything else. And if we keep trying, not only us, everybody in the field, everybody in science or in medicine will get there. And this is what the last few years have shown us. It's been a revolution in medicine, just because people have the opportunity to keep trying new things. So if you give people enough time and resources, if they've got persistence, there's no, there's no doubt that they're going to get there.
0: Well, and, and something that, you know, from the short time we spent together, I can see that you have a lot of is, I, I would add to that a persistence and curiosity or persistence and creativity or persistence and the guts to be wrong. You know, like there, there's some people with persistence and resources that just keep doing the same thing they used to do. You
1: know? Oh my God, and, you're absolutely right. Right? So, no, I think you, you're absolutely right. That's one of the biggest lessons that you learned. So I think, I think, that you need to understand that you need to take a lot of input from other people. You know it's a very funny journey when you go from when you go from medicine to science because you're already what 35 and you've got all these 25 year old kids who have just come out of university but Believe it or not they know way more than you about science because you've been studying the human body you haven't been studying molecules and you get told off by these people who are 10 years younger than you every day and this is a lesson and it's an amazing lesson because it teaches you not only to be humble but to learn to listen and sometimes to learn to be to learn to not be disheartened when someone tells you well you know it's not going to work because you've got the wrong end of the stick. If you are able to accept that and make the most of this advice, then you you can't go wrong. I agree, and, and it's that. And, and of course, curiosity and, and and you know always asking questions and always trying to find the right answer, but also being able to listen to what you're doing wrong and adapting is I think the key to success.
0: You know, I, I talked a little bit earlier about these recurring themes that I hear over and over from these incredibly high achievers. And I, I think at some point, I'm going to have to write a book about humility and listening <laughs> because it comes up time after time after time. You know, one of my favorite interviews I've ever done is this guy, Steve Blank. He's a Stanford professor for 20 years, best-selling author. But but before that, he'd built eight different startups. And his last one, he sold for $8 billion, and, and, uh, right? And, Fantastic. you know, just the way that he talks about, like, you know, in his, he has such smart kids who come to Stanford or Berkeley to, to, to become entrepreneurs and be a part of Silicon Valley and these kind of things. Right. And, you know, so often, you know, if you go through his work, basically so often he says, the problem is arrogance and not listening. Like if people would quit thinking they have all the answers and instead like get out of their office and go talk to actual customers and find out if customers actually want what they're making, like in your case, it's different, you know, every parent wants their kid to be able to get over this liver disease like that. You, you've got you've got that one handled. But for most of the rest of us who are starting something, we've got this great idea of what people would want and how they would want it and why they would want it. And we sit around and convince ourselves. And then we ask our mom or our college roommate or our brother. And they agree. And we, we talk to a couple of other people who are probably trying to be nice to us. And And they say, Oh, yeah, it's a good idea. And then and then we go spend huge amounts of time building something and then you finish building it and people don't just line up to hand you cash, you know, and that that's just one of the places but it is interesting to me how many disciplines such simple concepts of get a hold of your ego, you know, choose to bring the beginners mind bite your tongue like I'm a guy who talks all the time, right? It's hard for me to bite my tongue. And yet, just such incredible out of this world things like people inventing mini organs. (laughs) <laughs> happen and they they credit large portions of it from being teachable by focusing on what they don't know instead of what they do know. Anyways, it's fun for me to hear this principle over and over and over from people. Maybe it'll sink in one day. No,
1: but it's also, I mean, if you come to think of it, we 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 have had such a revolution in everything, right? In knowledge, in expertise. And I think it becomes it stands to reason that it's impossible that you can do what you do on your own, right? What you bring for example, to your business, to your lab, to your research, is the vision, is this big vision, this big idea. But then if it comes down to expertise, I think it's impossible to say that you can master all the fields. There's no way I will know every tiny component that goes into the organs that we make. I will have an overview, but for the engineering parts, I need an engineer. And the biggest mistake is to be so cocky that you think you know better and you treat your engineer like like a bot in the end of the in the end of the day and you say, this is what you're going to do what you say doesn't matter i think this is a recipe for failure i think the most important thing is to be able to work at the interface between disciplines and get every member of the team to give their expertise and this way they are happy and also i think this is part part of growing to lead bigger teams to getting more things done. So I I think if you've got a member of the team and they've got expertise, for example, if you let them grow with you, then you can then delegate to them. And that makes you be able to do when you were doing one thing, because all your energy was devoted to that. Now you can pick up another thing and then you grow, they grow, everybody's happy. But of course, if you don't listen and you are so micromanaging everybody and and so set uh, on your opinions then I don't, think, I don't think it's possible that you will be able to know everything in such detail that you will be able to deliver a successful result.
0: Yeah, no no kidding. Well, um, so uh, tell us a little bit more about Billatech. Who, who is your ideal customer at the business?
1: Well, at first, well, the ideal customer is healthcare services, right? Because... These, what Bilitech does is it is developing, um, it's focusing on bile duct disorders at the moment, but it's developing a regenerative medicine therapies. That means administering cells to regenerate an organ, to repair it, or administering bioengineered organ parts. And at the moment, we're looking at bioengineered bile ducts. So the way that would, that would go is that we're looking at an alternative to liver transplantation to begin with. And for this alternative to liver transplantation, a liver transplantation is a massive operation. The only the only customer who can move at this pace is, as I said, healthcare systems, right? And what you're trying to do is convince them that what you can provide is a solution that is better for their patients in terms of in terms of how well it performs. That could perform at least as good as changing an organ. It has less complications, and one of the most important things is about cost, right? That it comes at a fraction of the cost of a liver transplant. Because people tend to forget this. But unfortunately, this is one of uh, the most important components on when you are deciding whether you're going to administer a, a treatment worldwide. It also makes a huge difference. If you think about it from a humanitarian perspective, if you develop a therapy that costs 10 times as much as the liver transplant, and there's probably five billionaires in the world who can have it, in principle, it might be very very useful but effectively you've made something that that only few people can have and at best it can be um, used for developed countries now imagine the flip side of that building a solution which doesn't have to be way better than liver transplant. liver transplant works it has to be just as good at a fraction of the cost and think about how many countries which are economically challenged don't even have an adequate transplant program
0: yeah how, how much cheaper do you think it will end up being how, how... Compared to liver
1: well, transplant, well, I think I think if we're looking at the cost of a liver transplant, the ballpark figure that they have in the states, I think, is is 800k, isn't it, of, of a lifetime. In the UK, we say 500,000 pounds. If you look at the cost of a bioengineered product, it's between 50 000 and 60,000 pounds. So the way that's been uh, calculated at the moment. So I think we are looking at a fraction of the cost. Let's. Uh, I think we're looking at roughly 10% of the cost of a, of a transplant. But even if we were very, very pessimistic and we put it up to 20%, which is way above what we are, um, what we are anticipating, it would still be a huge gain. And the thing to think about with with all these things is that a lot of the cost is front loaded, which means you develop a lot of infrastructure and you spend a lot of money developing tests so that you ensure the safety of your product. The more product you sell, the more the value goes down. So in the end of the day, what you envision is developing a cellular therapy or a bioengineered organ technology that is accessible to everyone. And that is the goal. It's making a product which is cheap, so that everybody can have it.
0: What, yeah. What do you think you could get the price down to over, you know, years and years from now? What do you think the price could
1: come down to? That is a, a million-dollar question. But but I don't I don't have a very good answer. I, I have to be honest with you on that because it all depends on um, there are so many components which can be which can be optimized. But definitely from uh, getting a twenty-five or thirty percent reduction in the price of the product is not unreasonable. It's something that's entirely doable. As I said, part of it, for example, has to do with the manufacturing. A lot of these of these have now to be made by persons so that everything is QC'd. You, you know, there's a lot of things that goes into a lot of tests that are still done that need human supervision. But we are in contact with so many companies that are doing wonders in the in the field of automation. So if if that is rolled into and everything becomes an automated or semi-automated process, that is a huge cost saving. So I think there's a there's a lot of scope put it this way.
0: Yeah. So when it com- when it comes to business like this, is the what's the financing like? Does it take a lot of startup money like like biotech venture capital yeah. or
1: Yeah, exactly. The the cost for all these ventures is very, very front loaded. So what you tend to do is you tend to, to have to go through all the regulatory process at the very beginning. You tend to have to sort out things, to sort out your supply chain, because you have to be able to provide an adequate number of products to cover to cover the needs. And, and of course, in doing so, you have to deal with, with things like, how am I going to set up a supply chain for my product? Where is my product going to be stored? How am I going to be undergoing quality control? How am I going to be manufacturing it? And all this adds to the cost because there's so much R&D, research and development, going into how you will set things up. And the funniest thing is, once you've got your first product, which is the balda, once you make a tiny tweak and you say, you know, I was making the Baldac, now I'm going to make a ureter, which is the tube that transfers urine from the kidney to the bladder. It's a tiny tweak and it takes literally almost no extra money. You take everything that you have in place, and you add a different cell type, and you make a different tube in the body. But pretty much the principle is the same. So it's not unheard of in order to, to start growing into patients and, and sort of, you know, selling the product and being fully, completely set up to take 100 million, for example. However, as I said, it uh, it is also something that, that if it takes off, can have huge gains.
0: Yeah. So, and are you guys disclosing how much you've raised already? Is that something you share, uh, you share
1: publicly? Fundraising of a fundraising round. So oh, okay. I don't think we should. Uh, sure. Uh, sure. So no, no, are, that's fine. Yeah, yeah.
0: So when you think about when you think about other people who like, for me, I'm I'm fascinated in. The medical investment world because you know you look especially at the aging baby boomers. I mean this is a generation that has really put their foot down and said, I don't want to age. I'm willing to spend what it takes to not get older. <laughs> right. Which we, we can argue about whether that's possible or not, but they're certainly willing to shove out the cash to to not get old as quick as their parents did. Right. And there's a lot of them. So the thing that I think for me has been very intimidating is there is a lot of science and there's a lot of complexity and there's a lot of extra regulations. And, and yet there is such opportunity, specifically, I'm going to say with anti-aging or or things that I'll call life extension seems to be a, whether it's life extension itself or just quality of life extension is, is something that people are willing to put, put the cash down for, it, it appears, at least of my parents' generation, right? And when you think about folks who are evaluating that space, what are principles? You know, you think because there are obviously a lot of stories of people put up the 100 million and then the business doesn't go anywhere and is almost felt more like gambling than than uh, buying a reliable cash flow stream. Right. And then there's those folks that there's those folks that do incredibly well and seem to do it repeatedly. So it can't be a 100 percent gambling. If it's, in, if it's within the circle of competence of certain biotech investors to repeatedly allocate to the right type of investments, it can't be completely gambling. So my question for you is, for the rest of us who we hear about some fascinating new technology, like, you know, the possibility of people not having to get a liver transplant and just getting an injection from you and and their kid's liver gets repaired. I mean, like, you can see how much parents would pay for something like that and pressure insurance agencies... Uh, insurance, medical insurance, or, you know, I grew up with Alberta Healthcare, you know, in Canada. My question for you is, when it comes to principles of who to back, what are things that you think investors should be thinking about?
1: Well, I think they should be thinking about first of well, first of all, you need to back the right science, right? Because, you know, I mean, however good the rider, if the horse is not good, it's not going to finish first. There's only so much the rider can do. The second thing is you need to back teams which have a plan. I think. And what we see and and Cambridge is a place where there's so many startups sprouting because there's so much good science. And I'm sure uh, the same is going to be in California in the States, the same is going to be in Boston. I mean, you know, but the question is, why does all this amazing science not make it into products? And I think this has to do with the team from that point on. So, the team needs to have all the skill sets which are required. It's very common, for example, a team to be to to not have enough business savvy persons on board, right? Or not not a good manufacturing person because the science, you know, once you've got the 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 right engine, you have to build the rest of the car around it. Otherwise, it's not going to go um anywhere on its own. And the third thing that I think is important is the team dynamics. You need to see that the team works as one. I think I think once you've got because I there are most of the guys who have startups that investors will start that serious investors will start looking at, the science will be solid to be honest. And there will be huge publications to back it up. And the science will be peer-reviewed. Where I think it fails down is our vision stopping at the science and not being able to take the next the next leap. How is it going to, that prototype that actually works, it's fantastic, but how is it going to end up being in every patient with end-stage liver disease, in every kid? How big is this market? How are we going to be able to saturate this market, in, in a sense? You see what I mean? And of course, um, what is our backup plan? Because a team that works well can foresee the risks as they go forward. You know, if if some, if you talk to someone and it's going to be it's all going to be a okay. There's going to be no problems from now to 100 million. I think there's something wrong going on there, right? So I I feel I feel that's important. But I think the the place where a lot of where we see a lot of failure in, in startup biotechs, especially in regenerative medicine at the moment, is building a team with enough manufacturing and regulatory expertise. So that we can translate prototype to product, and and I'm sure that many of these prototypes, had they been properly translated to products, they would really work. You know, they would really, absolutely work. But it's it's this this huge gap that you have to bridge. You know that that
0: makes me think of something. I you know in my business, I am I'm most interested in like the Warren Buffett model, where he he isn't the CEO of all these companies he owns. He isn't the CEO of Dairy Queen and all these businesses he owns, he has like really exceptional people who who run those businesses and essentially his holding company. I mean, uh, Richard Branson and the the Virgin companies, you know, he's not he's not the CEO of 400 companies he started. Right. Mm -hmm. But but I do think about this because in my world, it's the portfolio managers that that I would be bringing on to run another fund for us or, you know, you know, build a new fund with a new strategy, things like this. Right. Who are the experts at it? And to me, there's some similarities to medical professionals. These guys, you know, most of they they go to Harvard or they go somewhere like this, and then they, they end up at Goldman Sachs or something like this. And they're very, very rewarded for individual effort in general. And and their bonuses are often individual. And it it's not, they work together with others, but it doesn't always feel like as much of a team sport, right? And yet I I look at, I look at what I want them to come over and do. And, you know, like entrepreneurship is majorly a team sport. I mean, how many, how many startups fail because you got a collection of individuals and everybody wants to be the smart guy and they're looking out for number one and they're not, they're not, it's not a well-oiled machine. Right. So my question for you is thinking about in many ways, like, you know, if you, if you collaborate while getting your medical degrees, they call that cheating, you know, (laughs) (laughs) right. You know, like You know for those for all those years, so many your finances like you know you might be sharing finances with a spouse or someone like that, but probably not with your colleagues. you know you don't have people with deep experience sharing a bank account with each other and like all the potential conflict and those kind of things. So my question is when you take really high achievers who have maybe been told for years and years, not directly but but subtly, they've been told success is an individual sport. And now you want them to, to work together as a team, do you have any principles or any ideas in either selecting people who are more team-minded or helping grow more of a more of a team sport feeling for experts that have kind
1: of been yeah, not absolutely. growing up that way? So I think I think that what what is important is the bigger the talent you get, usually unfortunately the bigger the ego. So if you want to manage a team which is like bustling with talent, then there's going to be such class. Of so many huge egos. And it's it's normal. You have to manage it. To some extent, one of the things we need, when you need to do is to make sure that people like each other. I think this is crucial. There are some aspects between people that ha- that go beyond your ego or beyond how, how, how accomplished you feel you are or you are not. People click with each other or they don't click. And in some sense, a company or a startup is a bit of a marriage because there's no way you will not have disagreement. There's no way there will be no bumps. In fact, if there's no bumps, someone is not doing their job. I I personally want people who are part of my team to come back to me and say, yeah, we're heading for a cliff there. This is a huge mistake. You know, you need to steer us away from that. And sometimes I will be stubborn and say, no, what are you on about? And I want them to hold their ground and say, look, you have to listen. Because this is what makes it uh, unique. But to some extent, this is built on a matter of trust. And that means people need to click. And you, you can have a huge ego, but you have to respect that the other guy opposite you is also someone who is really worth their weight. Put it this way. The second thing, and I learned that initially from science, because in science, you know, when you work, especially as a junior, you publish, but there's only one person who's first author. And this is what they're all fighting for. It's it's a disaster. And I think what you learn in the lab is that if someone does their work, they own their work. So if you've got a person who comes in to do A, then they should feel that they own A, that what they do, their job is, is unique for the company. It is bringing on something which no one else can bring. And therefore, if someone next to them is performing super well, it is okay because actually they're complementing them, you know, they're not b- building exactly the same part of the car as it were. And of course, you always have to make sure there's a horizon that people are rewarded, that they that they see that they can grow to do something else. If you make everything a pyramid where there's only, you know, people can just progress by way of mutual elimination. It's a disaster. So to some extent, you have to try to understand what motivates everybody. And everybody has their own different motives. So I think if you find what what makes everybody click, you focus on that and you try to make sure that they get the satisfaction by getting back what they need. I'm not sure if that's straightforward enough or if I'm being a bit vague here, though.
0: No, I think that's great. I think that's great. Listen, I know we're about out of time, but what, one of my favorite questions to ask people, maybe going in a different direction here, is what's one of the best pieces of advice you ever received?
1: It's a it's a really really difficult one, isn't it? So, I think it's it all boils down to the to the thing that that you that you said before about being humble and so on and so forth. But I think the, the best piece of advice is that whatever comes your way, I think, you should not despair. You should always um Take time to think, make all your decisions with a cool head, and then come back to it and keep batting at it. And if you don't give up, everything is a matter of time and, and, and resources. All you need to do is take your time. And if and if it feels like you can't tackle it now, revisit it and it will work. And this is what I've been doing throughout, throughout my life. But of course, having said that, there's so many pearls of wisdom I have received throughout the years. But I think this is the one the one principle that I have for everything I've been doing. Everything you tend to do seems like a mountain at first. And what you have to do is you have to start climbing. And every now and again, just look at the top. And you will see that it's getting closer and closer as you are as as you keep going at it. And I think that's that's the only thing. It's just about having the drive and to do
0: things. Yeah. Well, maybe my, my last question here that I've I've had such different responses to, it's been fun for me, at least, is thinking about where you grew up in- and how you grew up, how do you think that's been advantages to what you've done with your life and what you're doing now?
1: I, I think that, yeah, it definitely ha- has been an advantage. I hope I, I understand your, your question correctly. You asked me how, how it, it sort of provides an advantage growing in a different uh, place. Yeah, I think it does. I think it does because you know what? Everything you get, you consider it to be a gift. For me, being able to move from Athens to Cambridge was a huge gift I never thought I would ever be able to train in Cambridge. You know, you don't take it for granted. And then every little thing you do is huge. And I think one of the biggest problems in in starting, I mean, these people are very talented, but in starting at the best possible schools, finishing in an Ivy League university, getting your postdoc in is that you kind of expect, after a while, you relax. You kind of expect that everything will happen automatically. But when you come from somewhere where people are like, well, look, don't even look at these universities. There's no chance you're getting in, right? It makes such a huge difference. And it motivates you so, so very much to keep trying for the next thing and the next thing and the next thing. And and it's the same here for the company, for example. When when I was thinking about it 10 years ago, it would never have crossed my mind that it would even be a possibility. So you know, now that you've got it, it's such a huge thing. You you feel so lucky, so privileged, and of course you do your utmost to do well with it. So it motivates.
0: Yeah, you know, it's actually a similar message. Last night, I was on the phone to a, I was on I was on a podcast with a guy who ran a, a large company in the Philippines, like twenty two thousand employees. And he, he had spent about 15 years in the States, but before that he'd grown up north of Mumbai in India. And he just said, yeah, like if you want to be somebody, if you want to get something done in life, like there's no sitting around because there's 1.3 billion people you're competing with. (laughs) And he's like, I I learned to turn on the jets. Like, you're not going to like, you're not going to get there by accident. You're not going to get there taking anything for granted. And, and, you know, you look at, as he's moved from, from country to country and, and, and achieve such levels he just felt like that mindset really gave him this unfair advantage and uh, exceptional advantage and uh, I can really see it in his story you know and it seems like the same thing for
1: yourself yeah it makes perfect sense as I said yeah you have to keep you have to keep time right things will not fall on your lap well listen if, if people want to find out
0: more about your research or what you're doing or the companies where where's the best places for them to to,
1: to learn more So I think the best way would be uh, to drop me a line. Of course, there's, there's all the papers which are available online. There's the University of Cambridge website. And then you can look up anyone who looks in the university. But I'm always very, very happy to answer to my email. So if anyone wants to get a hold of me, if they drop me a line at fs347 at um, cam.ac.uk, so that's fs347 at uh, cam.ac.uk, then, then I will be much, much delighted to to have a conversation and uh, come back to them and give them more information about what we're doing.
0: Well, that's great, and th- thanks for making time to do this. It's such a fun conversation.
1: It was so good uh, chatting to you. I really, really enjoyed it. It was a, it was an amazing experience. <laughs> Bye, everyone.